You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. The heart of the gospel, which is what we've been studying here for the last four weeks, the heart of the gospel is that God is for you. That's about as simple and direct as I can say it. But that simple sentence requires some unpacking. There is one living, sovereign, all-glorious, and triune God. He's infinite, eternal, unchanging, all-sufficient, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's the maker and sustainer of the world and the Lord and ruler of history. And this God, this one living, sovereign, all-glorious, and triune God is for you. He's on your side. He's in your corner. He's not indifferent to you or apathetic about you. He's not hostile to you or opposed to you. His goodness and his mercy pursue you all the days of your Life, the heart of the gospel is that God is for you. That could be the shortest sermon I've ever preached right there. But few of us feel the glory and wonder of that reality. Like we hear it, we confess it, we sing about it, we want to boast and glory and exult in it. But I'll just be honest, our hearts struggle to rise to such glory. They just stay dead. You hear it and it just, come on, heart. (laughs) The heart doesn't come. And one reason perhaps for that struggle is confusion. We We don't see the glory clearly. And so my very modest goal this morning is to sow some seeds of clarity from Romans 8 about the heart of this gospel in hopes that the Holy Spirit will take those seeds and make them bear fruit, will raise your affections higher. And more than that, I want to offer some seeds of clarity that may help us testify to the heart of the gospel to the world around us. And more than that, I want you to revel in what John Piper calls the greatest promise in the Bible. So, in this passage, we hear the language of charges and justification and condemnation. And those words place us somewhere. They they give us a setting. They place us in a courtroom. And there are at least three people in this courtroom. There's the accuser who's bringing charges. There's the accused who is on trial. And there's the judge who renders the verdict and pronounces the sentence. There's no jury here. This is ancient courtrooms, not modern courtrooms. So the judge does both of those. And that brings us, this courtroom brings us to maybe this first confusion. 
As Christians, like we all know, okay, we're the accused and God is the judge. But the world around us is confused on precisely this point. For many today, I think in our culture, the idea that we're the accused is the problem. It's not how they think of themselves. They don't see themselves as the criminal in this situation, as the one on trial. In fact, for many people in our culture, God is the one who needs to come down to the courthouse and answer some questions. Where's he been? What's he been doing? C.S. Lewis, 75 years ago, noted this, that for many, God is the one who is on trial. He's the, he's the one in the dock. This, Lewis said, created in the modern world a new situation for us. Here's, here's Lewis. The early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers, whether Jews or pagans, a sense of guilt. Thus, the Christian message was in those days unmistakably good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. On the other hand, Lewis goes on, we have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. Or again, he goes on, the ancient man approached God or, or even the gods, if they're pagans, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He's the judge, God is in the dock. And he's a quite kindly judge, right? If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, disease, this week we could add school shootings, we're ready to listen to it. Give us your best reasons. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, like we may let him off. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God in the dock. So I'm gonna call that, that confusion about this courtroom, the world's confusion. The Christian confusion, I think, is a little more subtle. So when we Christians hear the language of the courtroom, okay, we know we're the accused and God is the judge, but what about the accuser, right? So who will bring a charge, like an accusation against God's elect? So what do you think of when you hear accuser? And my guess is for many of us, we think of the devil which is a good thing to think of because the name Satan means accuser. It's just what the word means. He's the accuser. And then all of a sudden we can feel a little bit of a confusion because Satan's the bad guy. He hates us. He's a malicious liar and a murderer. Like the, the name devil means slanderer. So he's the accuser and he's the slanderer and so we wanna go, what's he doing in God's courtroom? Why is he there? And our imaginations at this point can begin to kind of subtly shade things in a funny way. We perhaps begin to imagine a courtroom where the prosecutor, the accuser, is maliciously evil. He's uttering false accusations against us. He's lying about us. He's slandering our character. And then we begin to wonder, wait, is, are his false accusations going to be effective? Are his accusations gonna work? and convict us? Are his false charges going to stick? And if they did, what does that mean about the judge? It means he's either blind 
or compromised. He's either inept or he's on the side of the devil. And so there's a Christian confusion here, perhaps. And so both of these errors, the world's confusion about who exactly is on trial and maybe our confusion about the role of the accuser, hinder our ability to rejoice in the heart of the gospel. Like in the first case, the news, God is on your side, he's declared you not guilty, is met with, who's he think he is? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not on trial. Or even more, you know what, I don't even need that. He's probably not even real. This is a make-believe courtroom. He's just a fiction to make you feel better, Christian. And if he is real, let's just say if he is real, then he's got some explaining to do. God is for you. In the more subtle confusion, we may feel some relief that God is for us, has rescued us from the false accusations that the devil was bringing. But our relief may have a little twinge, like in the back of your mind, what are you doing allowing that liar to come after me at all? In both cases, in both cases, the chief difficulty concerns the reality and the gravity of sin. In the same essay I quoted earlier, Lewis noted the greatest barrier that he faced in his evangelistic and apologetic efforts is this. The almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. That was the greatest thing is he went around engaging with butchers and bakers and candlestick makers, engaging with educated people in the colleges or soldiers on the front line, everywhere he went in England in the 1940s. So how much more America in 2020, right? Anywhere he went, it was just everything. I'm coming to tell you some good news and everybody's going, but there's no bad news. Apart from that sense of sin, the gospel doesn't make sense. That's why a crucial part of the church's witness in the modern world is the reality of God's holiness and Jesus' demands for the world. Dwight Moody is reported to have said, you've got to get people lost before you can get them saved. And this is difficult in the modern world for a number of reasons. Let me give you two. First, because modern culture rejects just the whole notion of the moral law of God. Lewis referred to this as the Tao. Okay, so this is a fancy phrase, just follow me here. It's called, he calls it the Tao, and what he meant by it was this is the objective and moral order of the universe, that God has built into reality. In his book, Abolition of Man, Lewis says, look, in the ancient world, uh, everybody believed in an objective moral order. Now, there might have been some differences in expression, but everybody believed that reality was reality. Uh, He actually, he says, all ancient civilizations believe this. The reason he used the name the Tao, which seems kind of weird, is because he he, he took a word from like Eastern religions to communicate, this is universal. This isn't just like a Western thing, a European thing, a Christian thing. This is a human thing in all times and all places up until modern times. He said this, the doctrine of objective value, like this is, this is the core of that moral order, the belief that certain attitudes of ours are really true and others are really false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of things we are, this was common to all teachers and even all men, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, pagan, whatever the differences there are between them, and there are some substantial differences there, A common thread was the belief in objective reality to which we must conform ourselves. 
Modern people, on the other hand, think of reality as Plato. To be manipulated according to our wishes and desires. There's no law that hangs, stands over all of us, no lawgiver that binds us as judge. And so for Lewis, the difference between ancient pagans and modern unbelievers is that the ancient pagans had a self-conscious sense of sin and guilt. That's why they sacrificed to the gods and engaged in all sorts of rituals to purify themselves. Modern people, on the other hand, have a subconscious sense of guilt. It's, it's not self-conscious, it's subconscious, and it often comes out sideways. Like, like modern people are still seeking purification and innocence and justification through social media or social signaling or political action or bodily transformation or whatever ways it comes out funny, but what's absent is a self-conscious sense of I'm the one who's wrong. So that we're a guilt-ridden people who no longer believe in objective standards for guilt. This is why, a little parenthesis here, this is why I really struggle, honestly, I can't join Christians who celebrate the demise of cultural Christianity or Bible Belt religion or whatever you call it. Sometimes you see Christians celebrate, hey, we're past all that, isn't that great? Christians like that welcome the loss of Christian culture in Europe and America because they believe that that cultural Christianity was a hindrance to the spread of the gospel, right? It, it lulled people into a false sense of security because you believe in the good Lord and the good book and you're all good. It covered over rank evil and it was a stumbling block to unbelievers. They think, so good riddance, get rid of that. And there's truth to the criticism. But I think that's a significant error. Cultural Christianity never saved anyone. And to the degree that it covered over sin and wickedness, God hated it and we ought to condemn it. But cultural Christianity, however imperfect, was and is a manifestation of the Tao. It was a, in that sense, it's a, it's a form of pre-evangelism. It tills the soil and prepares it for the seed. It teaches us through laws and customs and cultural practices the reality of God's moral order for the universe. And so cultural Christianity never saved anyone, but it did give many a sense of sin and guilt which prepared them to hear the good news and hear it as good news. And there's a second difficulty then, brings me to that. Second difficulty, that was a parenthesis. Second difficulty for us in the modern world, many of us, as Christians now, want our friends and family and neighbors to know Jesus. And we don't want them to stumble over other things. Like, if, like we're like, okay, look, if they stumble over Jesus, that's fine. But let's remove the other stumbling blocks. That's a good impulse, that's Paul's impulse. Come, I'm gonna, you know, Become like Greeks, become like Jews. I'm gonna remove as many barriers as I can because I wanna save some. It's a good impulse. But the problem is we can't separate Jesus from his demands, including the demands of the moral law which he built into creation. We may not, we must not water down or mute the voice of God in his word and in our conscience. And it's so tempting to do so in a modern world which rejects all of that. Like how tempting, just honestly for you, how tempting is it to present Jesus to others only as the fulfillment of their desires and aspirations? 
as a source of comfort and happiness without ever pressing upon them the reality of God's law and their sin. Like, how easy is it to turn Jesus into just one more malleable part of reality that we can sort of shape according to our wishes and desires? How easy is it to remake God in our image rather than face the fact that we've dishonored him as the one whose image we bear? And so in the face of those two difficulties, the loss On the one hand, the loss of the consciousness of the moral law in our culture, and secondly, the temptation to please people by accommodating accommodating that loss and muting the demands of Jesus, what should we do? Just one little thing here. We must labor to creatively and clearly and courageously press the law of God on the consciences of men. Like Nathan with King David, We must work with God's help to awaken the moral sense of our friends and families and neighbors and then to lovingly and clearly turn it around and say, you're the man. And we do this in hope that they come to feel their lostness and therefore are able by God's grace to see and savor the glory of the heart of the gospel that God is for them. And of course, that action out there begins with us. It brings me back to that more subtle confusion that we have about the courtroom. Because though it's true that the devil is a liar, we must not think that the accuser in God's courtroom is necessarily a liar. Because the reality is he doesn't need to lie. So for a moment, instead of the devil in this courtroom, Imagine the holiest of God's angels as the prosecuting attorney. And imagine this holiest of all angels standing before the righteous judge and opening the book to Romans chapter one, pointing at each of us and saying, you've not honored God as God. You've not treasured him and delighted in him supremely. You've not given thanks to him for all of his kindnesses to you. You've exchanged his glory for idols, his truth for a lie, and you have worshiped and served creatures, including and especially yourself, instead of the creator who is blessed forever. You followed the lust of your heart. You've debased your mind. You've despised the masculinity of men and the femininity of women. You've indulged every sort of dishonorable passion and sexual immorality. You've been filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil covetousness and malice. You're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. You are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You know God's decree. It's written on your heart, and yet you have suppressed that truth and celebrated ungodliness and unrighteousness in yourself and others. You are the man. That's the reality of the courtroom. Now, imagine sitting there 
in that courtroom, knowing that every word that that angel spoke is true. And every ungodly thought, every careless word, every sinful desire, and every unrighteous deed you've ever committed is laid bare as damning evidence of your guilt. And then, imagine that the judge, the infinitely holy and unimpeachably righteous judge, looks at you and says, not guilty. No condemnation. Righteous, justified. And more than that, he looks at you and says, I am 100% for you. I'm on your side. I'm in your corner. I've got your back. My goodness is yours forever. Now, at that point, (laughs) that cries out for some explanation. And that's what Paul gives in Romans 8.33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That series of questions and answers contains a deeply profound argument. It's like this. If the Supreme Court of the universe has ruled in your favor, what charges could possibly stick after it? Like, it's sort of like you gotta have a scenario of two, there's like the courtroom that you walk into and then there's the courtroom you walk out of and at that point the devil might come and start trying to lie about you. But at that point you're like, hey, he said I'm good. The judge said, it's all good. Who could possibly bring a charge against you if the supreme and righteous judge has already decided your case? Paul then points, God is the justifier. Who is to condemn? Like, who's the condemner? Well, Paul then points to the ground of justification. He, He reaches back earlier to his argument, Romans 3, where he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're the man and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. He'd look the other way. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, listen, he might be just, righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is justifying the guilty, the ungodly, as a gift, as grace, because of what Jesus has done. Jesus pays the debt. He satisfies God's righteous wrath through his death on the cross, which we receive by faith, and thus God is able to be both truly and unimpeachably righteous, and yet the justifier of the sinner who believes in Jesus. In other words, the reason that you as a guilty sinner condemned for your rebellion against God and the objective moral order he embedded, the reason you can be declared righteous is because Christ died for you. He was raised for you. He ascended to heaven and sits at God's right hand for you and even now is making intercession for you. In other words, this is what we left out earlier, confusion in the courtroom, there's a fourth person in there. Not only is there a judge and an accuser and an accused, you, there's an advocate. As the Apostle John says, 1 
1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is unpacking the heart of the gospel. The righteous judge justifies you. He counts you righteous. He reckons righteousness to you, as Pastor Kenny preached a few weeks ago, because by grace, through faith, you are united to Jesus the righteous who died, was raised, ascended to God's right hand, and ever lives to plead for you. And don't miss that intercession part there. Paul capstones it there with that intercession. Indeed, it's even, he's even interceding for you. The book of Hebrews, dwells on this at length. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Why? What makes this a better covenant? Because unlike the Levitical priests, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. They died and their work ended. They died and that was it. Jesus died, it wasn't it. There's more, more than that. He was raised. He continues forever. He's seated at God's right hand. As a result, he is able, listen, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He always lives to make intercession for them. Now look, here's the deal. Like if that was all, like that would be amazing. Like if that was, okay, that's the good news. That's the heart of the gospel. God's for you in that terms. That's pretty good. More than pretty good, right? It's, it's really good. But there's more. Like last week in Pastor Jonathan's sermon, I don't know what struck you the most about reading slowly through Romans 5, but here's what struck me, sitting there, having read that passage hundreds of times in my life, and then for this, this just, just land on me. It was the repeated use of phrases like this, not only that, much more, and more than that. Do you remember that last week? Just over and over again that came up? So listen, we have peace with God, I'm summarizing. We've obtained access into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Not only that, there it is, we rejoice in sufferings. While we were sinners, Christ died for us and since we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by his life, by, by, by him from God's wrath. Since we were reconciled while enemies through his death, much more shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through Christ Jesus. You hear it over, not only that, much more, more than that, again and again. You see the same thing here in Romans eight with the work of Christ. He died, more than that, he was raised. But more than that, he ascended and sits at God's right hand. But more than that, he's indeed interceding for you right now. And this is so crucial, okay? If there's one thing I want you to walk out of this room on a Memorial Day weekend and remember, it's this. The God who is for you, the God who meets you in the person of Jesus is the God of more than that. He's the God of, but, but, but wait, there's more. <laughs> but wait, there's more. There's always more. And not just in terms of Christ's work, but in terms of the good he intends. Notice the shift there in 835. We go from the courtroom, accusation, justification, condemnation, more than that, to love. Who shall separate us from love of Christ? And then he presents all these obstacles that could conceivably keep us from Christ's love. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And notice, you see the difference there? Like in the courtroom, the courtroom questions, they had to do with like sin and guilt and accusations, moral evil. That's one sort of barrier to God being for you. 
This question has to do with suffering and hardship and natural evil. And Paul's argument is that the work of Christ completely removes the first and therefore fundamentally transforms the second. The death, resurrection, ascension, and advocacy of Jesus removes every bit of sin and guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I saw Joel earlier, he's got it on his arm. Romans 8, verse 1. No condemnation, real justification, no higher appeal. But more than that, the work of Jesus transforms the suffering we endure on his behalf. Our sufferings, all of them, are for the sake of Jesus. Like, it's not just merely the persecution. That's in the list. But that's not all that's in the list. All manner of suffering, distress, famine, nakedness, dangers, these sufferings, too, are for Jesus' sake. And how does the work of Jesus transform them? Well, the work of Jesus makes our sufferings work for our good. So Paul says in Romans 8, 28, all, we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, including tribulation, distress, persecution, and the rest. Put it another way. The work of Jesus makes us more than conquerors in all these things. You can't leave that phrase out. What does that mean? What does is, what is more than conquer mean? You ever thought about that? So it's the only time this word's used in the Bible. More than conquer, only time. Conquer gets used a bunch. Sometimes translated overcome. That's what, over, that's what conquer means. A conqueror, um, when you conquer something, it means you overcome it. Like you don't let the, the thing keep you from getting where you want to go. That's conquer. Got that? So I overcome it, put it in the past, and I reach my destination. Accomplish my purpose. So if you conquered tribulation, distress, famine, and so forth, that, that would mean something like, you don't let those things keep you from reaching your destinations. In other words, a conqueror is someone who endures the hard thing. Follow that? Okay. More than a conqueror recognizes that these sufferings are not merely hardships to be endured, but are themselves the means of giving you more of God. A conqueror endures suffering. He guts it out. A more than a conqueror rejoices in suffering because suffering works endurance, as Pastor Jonathan said last week, and character and a hope that never disappoints. He knows a more than a conqueror is persuaded. He is sure nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Which brings me back to the greatest promise in the Bible. It's Romans 8.32. So John Piper says, Romans 8.32, greatest promise in the Bible. The heart of the gospel is that God is for us and therefore no one and nothing can successfully be against us. Not now, not ever. And then Paul gives this amazing argument to help you really believe that. And it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. So you got to think about how this argument works in order to get the full benefit of this. So he who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So dwell for a minute. If God did not withhold his son from death for you, what will he not do for you? Like that argument is built 
What's, what's lurking back behind that? What's the assumption there? It's built on the infinite worth and value of Jesus to God and the Father's eternal and infinite love for his son. Like that's what's in the background of that. The Father loves the Son with unimaginable glory. Like just, you can't even, you got no concept of how much the Father loves the Son. That's what's back there. And then he says, if he didn't spare his Son for you, look, what's he not gonna give you? Like what's he not gonna, like the hardest thing, the greatest thing that he could ever do for you, he did. So anything else after that, it's just more. It's just more. Given the worth of Jesus to the Father and given that he gave his son for you on the cross, there is absolutely no way he will hold anything back that is good for you. If he didn't withhold Jesus, no good thing will he withhold from you. He'll give you everything. And amazingly, this is what's great, right? He'll give you everything with Jesus. Not apart from Jesus. Don't miss that. Like God gave up his son but didn't lose his son. God didn't spare him, but he also received him back in resurrection, which means all the good that God intends to give you, he will give you with Jesus. He will always be for you the God of more than that. And there will always be more. Which brings us to the table. His table here every week represents the heart of the gospel. This is designed to be edible persuasion. Paul says at the end there, I am sure, I am persuaded, I am convinced. It's, help, it's to persuade us of God's love for us in Jesus. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he did not spare his son but gave him up for us so that he will give us all things with him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become God's righteousness. God is the justifier of the one who trusts in Jesus because Christ died, was raised, is at the right hand and is interceding for us. And God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And nothing, not the true accusations of angels or the false accusations of devils, not the hostility of persecutors nor the tribulations of life, not distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, not life nor death, the present or the future, anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God. So let's take and eat. I'm gonna invite the pastors to come. With the bread, we'll distribute, hold it, we'll eat it together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.